Brightest audience in the country. Welcome to Bob and Yard Live. I'm the pastor of Denver Bible Church. In a moment, we're going to resume the audio of Will Duffy's cross examination of Matt Slick in the great debate from December 1st and 2nd Calvinism versus Open Theism. But first, okay, now to the debate. This great debate, thousands of views online already. The comment threads under the Will Duffy versus Matt Slick. Is open theism a proper representation of the God of Scripture? The comments beneath that video are so fabulous, and it's such a great place to go and to share your own ideas, ask questions, and think through these important issues. So we have aired Will Duffy's opening statement, which we have heard from listeners around the country saying that this was the best defense of open theism they have ever heard. Will's opening statement. Then we went to Will Duffy's cross-examination of theologian Matt Slick, founder of CARM.org. We're going to continue with that, and the topic being discussed is Category 9 on a list of open theism verses that has been published on the internet at opentheism.org slash verses. And this category is God says things are possible that would be impossible if the future were settled or decreed. So Calvinists say that God can only do that which he has decreed, yet in the Bible, dozens of times, God indicates things that he could do if he wanted to do them right at that moment. I could come up in one moment and consume you, God says, but then he doesn't do it because of his mercy. So by Calvinist theology that God can only do what he has decreed, then all these would be misrepresentations. And in fact, at times, God says, I can do this right now. Right now, if I wanted to, I could do this, but I'm not going to do it. So let's continue now with Will Duffy's cross-examination of Matt Slick. Did the Father, before the foundation of the world, decree at that moment to send 12 legions of angels to Jesus? No, because it didn't happen. So then does that mean that God did not have the ability to do it because he did not decree it? Does it mean that God did not have the ability? God ha- See, here's a sense of what ability means. Ability can mean a sense that a person has that ability. Like, for example, which I'll never do, I have the ability to commit adultery. It's not going to happen. Stop the tape, stop the tape. Okay, Matt Slick is in a very difficult spot. He's making up things as he goes along. He's trying, but he shouldn't be. Here's what he should say. By my theology, God had the ability to decree he would do that when he decreed all things. At this point in Jesus' life, God does not have the ability to send 12 legions of angels. At this point, God no longer has the ability to. That's what he should say if he's being forthright, honest about his theology. But Will is pressing him on a brilliant line of argumentation 
to expose the fallacy of Calvinism that God himself, and this is true also of Arminianism, that God himself no longer has free will, the ability to change what would otherwise be the future, which by both theologies has been settled from eternity past. Let's continue. It's going to do, that's going to happen. There are different senses of ability. On another sense, I don't have the ability to commit, commit adultery because I love my wife and I'm committed to Christ. There's different senses, and you keep equivocating by not defining and using the, differ the differences between those abilities in the different contexts. Okay, um, let's move on. In Exodus 33, God says to Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. I could come up into your midst in one moment and consume you. Same thing, he could. But if Calvinism is true, God could not do this because it was not decreed. You're mixing and you're, you're conflating the issue of decree with ability. And this is the problem. Ability is not the same thing as um, a decree. The Does God have the ability to do other than what he decreed he would do? Not if he binds himself by his word, he doesn't. Okay, so you're talking out of both sides of your mouth. No, I'm not. Who's a decree to in the intertrinitarian inter communion? Who's it to? Well, I don't believe oh, God I gotta, decreed I'm everything. not going to ask questions. Dang it. It's fine. <laughs> the decree is intertrinitarian. Okay. okay. It's not some nebulous thing out of the atmosphere. God decrees something. You're saying God limited himself by his own decree. He's, if he says he will not do something, then he will not do something. He can never leave us or forsake us, Hebrews 13.5. Yeah, and that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you said that God has limited himself with his decree. He did not decree to come up into Israel's midst in that moment and consume them. Right. Therefore, he doesn't have the ability to do it. He doesn't have the ability in the sense that he's not going to violate his own decree, but he does have the ability in the sense that he has the power to do it. Stop the tape. Stop the tape. Okay. The argument is that God cannot do that which he did not decree. If Matt Slick will admit that God could do, has the ability to do something other than that which he decreed, that would mean that the future is open. That's why they get themselves in a jam. They insist because ultimately of their commitment to utter immutability, which came to them from the pagan Greeks, who said anything perfect cannot change. They never thought about the perfect baby Jesus in Bethlehem. They never thought about the perfect acorn that becomes a mighty oak tree. They never thought about the perfection that God created in the Garden of Eden. All these perfect things change, and God the Son was perfect, and then he became flesh. He humbled himself, lowered himself, and became flesh. So perfect things change. There is no requirement for God to be utterly immutable. Therefore, the future does not have to be exhaustively settled. Because if God were to see a new thing or to have a new thought, he would break because he'd no longer be perfect. This is all pagan Greek theology that was brought into Christianity by Augustine, as he admits in his own writings. So when Matt Slick is saying that Will Duffy is equivocating, that is completely false. Matt is obfuscating at this point because of how clearly his theology is contradicting the scriptures. The title of this debate, Is Open Theism a Proper Representation of the God of Scripture? Over and over in the Bible, God says, I can do this right now. I could totally destroy Jerusalem, 1 Chronicles 21. God could have destroyed the Israelites while they were still in Egypt, Ezekiel chapter 20. 
God would have blessed Israel but for their sins, Hosea chapter 7. It goes on and on. This is the God of scriptures. Nowhere in the Bible does God say, I have decreed everything that I shall ever do, and I am bound by that. Nowhere. That is not the God of Scripture. By the title of the debate, Will Duffy has won this debate three times over already. Let's continue. He doesn't have the ability in the sense that he's not going to violate his own decree, but he does have the ability in the sense that he has the power to do it. I would call that a lie then from God. No, because in what sense is he doing? But what, see, I keep trying to tell you, you equivocate between the senses of what is meant by the ability. The ability of God. God has that ability. He's I'm, omnipresent. I'm defining the ability. I'm defining, a, I'm defining ability as he actually could have done that that moment. You are arguing he couldn't have done it that moment because he would be violating his decree. Are you able well, to agree? I'm not to ask questions. Agreed. I've already explained the okay. differences in the senses of what ability means if, as ability by nature versus ability by decree. You keep mixing them and conflating them. It's a fallacy and argumentation. You keep committing it. So if God in that moment actually came down and consumed them, you believe that that would be horrific because he'd be violating his decree, right? If he did, it would be because that's what he decided to do from eternity to do it. That's circular reasoning. I'm saying if he did what he said he would do, which we know because it's in the past, was not what he decreed. I don't understand what you said. What? God said he could consume them in yes. that moment, but yes, we know he didn't decree it. Right. So if he actually did it, wouldn't your theology he, break? No, because then it would mean that he decreed it, which is exactly what I would teach. That's circular. No, it's not. Yes, See, we're if talking he, about the past. If so he decreed, whatever he decrees is going to come to pass. If he decrees in it and they get wiped out, it's because what he decreed to occur. Right, but we know he didn't decree this, right? There you go. So That's why it didn't so, happen. So then you're admitting he didn't have the ability to do it. Here we go. All right, we're moving the on. The fallacy of conflation on. On. on the terms of the ability of different senses. What do you do with all of the times that the Bible attributes to God qualities that he can only have if he is in time? For example, the Bible says numerous times that God is patient. Do you believe God is patient? Yes, he's patient. How can he be patient? How, how does that have any meaning in your theology? I teach that God's patient and kind and loving and long-suffering. I teach it all the time. It's not a problem of my theology at all. Stop the tape. Stop the tape. Okay, so in the list of verses that Will has mentioned, opentheism.org slash verses, the third of 33 categories of types of open theism verses is God has qualities that can only be had if he exists in time. Like God is patient, slow to anger, God hopes, God endures. These are all in the scriptures, his faithfulness, his expectation. Patience, under patience, 14 verses are listed directly that say that God is patient, and there are two others because God is love and love is patient, we see overwhelmingly that God is patient. The argument Will Duffy is making is not, Matt Slick, do you teach that God is patient? Of course he does. The argument that Will Duffy is making is that God can only be patient if he exists in time. And realize that Will is not only debating Matt Slick. He's debating 1,600 years of Christian theology since Augustine. And so our systematic theology textbooks that are used at seminaries to prepare our pastors for the ministry, our Bible colleges, our popular Christian texts, our popular Christian books, our Christian movies, Christian radio, 
they teach almost ubiquitously that God is outside of time. So something dramatic has already happened in this debate where Matt Slick, for the first time in his ministry, we believe in decades, has said that he does not say that God is outside of time. That claim is all over his website, including in articles he's written. And so while this is all being processed in real time at the debate, what we realize then and now know for a certainty is that Matt Slick said this because of his two weeks of preparation for this debate. We have video of Matt Slick just two weeks before the debate rejecting that God is in time, affirming the typical Calvinist and Arminian teaching that God is outside of time. So Will Duffy wants to press and press and press the biblical truth that God exists in time, and therefore he has qualities like patience and endurance, and he's slow to anger. He's long-suffering. He can't sustain emotion, like when he says, I will not remain angry forever in Jeremiah 3. He has faithfulness from everlasting to everlasting. He endures in faithfulness, for he is the faithful God, as in Deuteronomy chapter 7. And he's hope. He's the God of hope. Let's continue. I teach it all the time. It's not a problem with my theology at all. Do you believe God is a God of hope, like Romans says? Yes, I do. How can you have hope if everything is decreed and settled? Ah, because I don't have to worry about God making a mistake or sinning and screwing up in the eternal... Romans says God is a God of hope, not not you having hope. How can God have hope? God have hope? Yes, that's what I asked. Do you believe God is a God of hope, like Romans says? God is the God of hope, which means he is the one actually having the hope. That's what God of hope means. That's what it means. Yes. It doesn't mean that we have hope in him. No. No. Oh, so he hopes. Yes. Okay, so he's hoping something works out? Yes. That's what the Bible says. Oh, so he's hoping things work out okay. So that verse doesn't mean what it says. Well, no, the verse doesn't mean what you think it says. Stop the tape. Stop the tape. So Will just asked Matt Slick about God having hope. This is so significant. You'll want to look at this verse list, opentheism.org slash verses. The third category, God has qualities that can only be had if he exists in time. Qualities like hope. He is the God of hope. The expectation that he says he has, like in Isaiah chapter 5, Jeremiah 3, Zephaniah 3, Jeremiah 18, he is hoping, he does everything he can to bring Israel, his beloved, to repentance so that they will trust him, so that he could bless them. He is expecting they will, he is hoping they will, but then they do not. The Apostle Paul wrote in the book of Romans, the greatest theological treatise in the history of the world, Romans chapter 8, verse 24, hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? In other words, hope involves future contingency. Hope that is seen is not hope. If you expect something to happen that does not happen, these require an existence in time. God cannot be in an eternal now in a simultaneity as it is claimed by countless theologians since Augustine this claim that God is outside of time, but 
these qualities of God that are biblical show that God exists in time. Now, Will's going to begin a new topic when God says, these things never entered my mind. So fascinating. What do the verses mean? Not, not nothing else. What do they mean? And there's numerous of them. There's, I think, at least three where God says things never entered his mind. What does that mean? Figure of speech. That, that's not what it means. That's what you think it is. What does it mean? A figure of speech is supposed to help us understand God better. Never enters his mind. And I showed you an example. I read it in the opening statement. You, you, made a, you made an error there. When somebody says something never entered their mind, they're not saying at that moment it didn't enter their mind. They're talking about when they first witnessed it. So that was a wait, mistake wait, 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 on wait, your wait, part. Wait, no, no, it wasn't. Um, if it said that he, no. And when he talked about the issue of children being burned in the fire, it never entered my mind that they would do that. We know for a fact that it had entered his mind. When he, he made that statement, it. he was not talking about that moment when he was saying it. He was talking about when it first happened in the past, which is why he put it into the well, law. Well, then we'd have to open up our Bible and do a little Bible study together. But we're, also, sure we're also getting off topic. What does that verse mean? What does what verse mean? When, when the three verses in Jeremiah say that things never enter God's mind, what does that mean? It's a figure of speech, as I told it's you. It's a figure of speech. What does the figure of speech mean? A figure of speech is, by definition, that which is not to be taken literally, but is an illustration of something. So those verses literally give us no knowledge and do not help us understand God any better? Yes, they do. What do they teach us? Because when you dig in the theological matters in the scriptures, you learn, which is why God does things like that. And I can hold a Bible study with you sometime and show you how that works. Stop the tape, stop the tape. Matt Slick repeatedly is condescending toward Will Duffy. Sure, Matt Slick has more decades of experience, but there are times when Will Duffy asks Matt questions that are so simple. For example, Will asked Matt Slick about the passage in Jeremiah 18 where God interprets the potter in the clay parable. Do you recall that? The potter in the clay is the primary Calvinist parable in the entire Bible. When Paul refers to the potter in the clay in Romans chapter 9, he is quoting from Jeremiah 18. That chapter begins with the potter in the clay parable, and then God interprets it. Will Duffy asks Matt Slick about God's interpretation of the potter in the clay parable, and Matt Slick says he's not familiar with the passage, he cannot address it. So over and over and over in the debate, when Matt is condescending to Will, oh, Will, you're young, I'll teach you, I'll school you, those are all debate tactics. And they certainly didn't work well for Matt Slick. In this case, this is a prediction of Will Duffy, in fact, our entire open theist community. And Will stated this in his opening statement that our opponents, our Calvinist opponents and Arminian opponents. They will say these verses are figures of speech, and a figure of speech is supposed to convey meaning. It's not literal. It conveys meaning. And when we ask what is the meaning, they don't have a meaning for it. All they say is, well, it's a figure of speech. What does it mean? Well, it's a figure of speech. That's insufficient. Even Matt Slick just admitted that a figure of speech is supposed to tell us something about the topic at hand. But time and time again, in fact, a hundred times over in the Bible, they will point to God saying things that they don't believe are true, 
and they say that's a figure of speech, and when you ask what it means, they're at a loss because figures of speech are obvious. Almost always, they're utterly obvious. A hundred times over, figures have absolutely no meaning. And there's something else about God saying that this never entered my mind. Three times he says this in the book of Jeremiah about his people sacrificing their children to false gods, killing their children as a blood sacrifice, very similar to what Planned Parenthood does today and parents all over the world do when they abort their children or even commit infanticide as liberals, Richard Dawkins, many are increasingly advocating it should even be legal to kill your child after they're born. If that surprises you, just go to our website, kgov.com slash infanticide, and you'll see the horrific truth and how big that movement is becoming. At any rate, three times God says, I did not command them to do this, nor did it come into my mind. Why does he say this? For other sins like adultery and theft, God never says, it didn't enter my mind and I didn't command it. So why say this regarding child sacrifice? Well, he did command the sacrificial system and he commanded Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. So those two things easily were in the minds of some when they saw around them the sacrificing of children. So God, in his anger over the gall of human beings, of parents, to kill their children in sacrifice to a false God, God says in Jeremiah chapter 7, in Jeremiah 19, in Jeremiah 32, that they sacrifice their sons, which I did not command or speak, nor did it come into my mind that they would do such a thing. And if you go to this list of 33 categories, opentheism.org slash verses, you'll see in this category six, a list of every verse in the Bible dealing with child sacrifice. This is a stunningly significant topic to God. And unlike what Calvinists and Arminians often end up implying, this is not something that has no meaning. When God says, it never entered my mind, he is being literal. When he says, I did not command this to occur, he's being literal. Let's continue. Like that. And I can hold a Bible study with you sometime and show you how that works. Okay, what do all the verses mean where God says he expected something to happen and it didn't happen? Uh, I would have to look at each one of those. Let's start with Isaiah okay, 5. You keep asking me okay, questions. I, I'm answering you. Okay, keep ahead. interrupting me right, repeatedly. And not permitting me to, from, to uh, finish my answers. Okay. All right. That's happening a lot. Okay. So what's your question again? What do all the verses mean where God says he expected something to happen and it didn't happen? I would have to look at each one individually. Just as you have said that there are different categories of things that occur in different verses. To ask me to say what do all of them mean isn't a fair question. All right. Let's look at one. Isaiah 5. Stop the tape. And stop I the tape. Uh, here's an answer. When the Bible says that God expected something to happen... In all those verses, it means that he expected those things to happen. You see, that is a fair question. And however, a Calvinist or an Arminian decides to dismiss the surface meaning of those passages, they can do the same on each one. They could say, this is a figure of speech, it's an anthropomorphism. Well, what does it mean when it says God expected something to happen? Well, it has no meaning. 
In Isaiah 5, God is talking about Israel, and he said, after all I did for Israel, I expected she would return to me, but she did not return. It's a figure of speech. What does it mean? It means it's a figure of speech. But what he's saying... <laughs> okay, I have a question for you. There's a beautiful, beautiful story in Isaiah 5. Stop the picture. tape, stop the tape. So significant. Now, the audience laughed. Sometimes when you're watching a presentation, of course, you desire to be respectful. But sometimes there's just a shocking statement that just brings out a response. And Will Duffy's prediction, our observations on this radio program for a quarter of a century, that when theologians want to dismiss a hundred verses in the Bible, and it's actually hundreds of verses in the Bible, they say that they're anthropomorphisms, they're figures of speech. And we ask, what does that mean? And they have no meaning. This screams out that they are not representing a theology from the scriptures. They are imposing a philosophy onto the Bible. And so where there are hundreds of verses that disagree, they say they're figures of speech. This happened to me yesterday on the discussion thread beneath this video on our YouTube channel. Just go to our website, kgov.com, or you could go to opentheism.org. Click on the video of the debate. Below the debate are comments. If you sort by newest comments first, you will see me interacting with someone who's arguing that virtually everything the Bible says about God is a figure of speech. And you know what that means? And I listed, indirectly, I listed 100 verses. And they're all figures of speech. You know what that means? That means the theologian could claim the Bible says anything he wants to claim it says and claim consistency with the scriptures because they're all figures of speech. They have no meaning as figures of speech, so they mean whatever I say they mean. Do you see the dynamic of what's happening? So that the Bible no longer provides a constraint on one's own interpretation because we just dismiss what the Bible says as meaningless figures of speech, and then we pick up a few proof texts here and there, and then we import our theology from extra-biblical sources. This is fascinating. I am so thankful that Will Duffy has debated Matt Slick, the founder of CARM, Will, the founder of OpenTheism.org. I can't wait till tomorrow, Lord willing, we'll continue going through this debate airing the key excerpts and you know what i think i'll try my hand at answering some of matt slick's questions myself it'll be fun god bless you guys hey have you seen real science radio's video evidence against the big bang it's available on dvd blu-ray or download i think you will love it hi this is bob enyart over the last 25 years real science radio's science predictions have had an uncanny way of coming true now with this video, Evidence Against the Big Bang, and Real Science Radio's popular online list of Evidence Against the Big Bang, we invite you to join the 21st century's surprising revolution in cosmology. Our goal is for millions more to be able to answer correctly and with confidence the number one most important question, where do we come from? This video will help us toward that goal as you watch this and enjoy it and loan it to others. 
When people wonder what evidence exists for the Big Bang, many ask Google, of course. And not surprisingly, when folks search for evidence against the Big Bang, Google sends many of them on over to Real Science Radio and our online list of evidence against the Big Bang. Yet this is surprising. When NASA urges you to trust the theory because of its predictions, folks who Google Big Bang predictions also find Real Science Radio's article ranked number one. This video is available at our website, rsr.org. Just click on the store and browse our science department or by calling us at 1-800-8-N-Y-A-R-T. That's 1-800-8-E-N-Y-A-R-T or 1-800-836-9278, 1-800-836-9278.